0: We are continuing on with issues that fall under the broad theological category called theological anthropology that I introduced last week. So in other words, what does God have to say about the human person? Psalm 8 is the great psalm that addresses theological anthropology. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Last week, we, we discussed the nature of gender and God's vision for human sexuality, and today we're going to pick up that discussion of gender, but we're going to talk more about the social dimensions of gender, and specifically, what is God's vision for leadership in the church and in the home? Has God assigned certain roles to women and certain roles to men? So it's going to be pretty straightforward. First, I'm going to break it down into uh, gender roles in church leadership, and then we'll discuss gender roles in leadership at the home. So first, let's talk about gender roles in the church. Now, this goes without saying, it can be a pretty heated debate, and as such, it's going to require us, one, to be charitable, and two, to actually define the terms of the debate. So from the outset, uh, I do think there's something larger in the background than this merely being a gendered debate. I think in the backdrop of this debate over gender and church leadership is a wider modern suspicion and crisis of authority. So this crisis of authority characterizes the modern era. We often view authority in purely negative terms, and there are significant reasons for that. However, we moderns need to recapture and better understand God's good authority. And as we understand what God's good authority is supposed to look like, we can better understand our limited authority and how that authority is an opportunity to rightly reflect the character of Jesus. And that's what Ephesians 5 is all about, which we'll get into later. But first, uh, I want to address a misconception about this debate over gender and church leadership. Uh, A first misconception goes like this. This is a debate about women in ministry. The issue is not women in ministry. I enthusiastically affirm women in ministry. The issue is women in the office of elder or what we would call senior pastor. Now, office might sound like uh, strange language to some of you. Uh, I'm not referring to a building at the front of the church, but a church office refers to a position of leadership in Christ's church. So the church has to have a form of government. It's got to be organized in some way. So there's authority for you. And scripture reveals to us three offices of the church. Apostles, which I believe have ceased in the sense of the original 12 apostles or the apostle Paul. Uh, nobody alive today has the same authority that those apostles had. So there's the office of apostle. Then there's the office of elder or pastors. Those words are kind of used interchangeably in scripture. And then there's the office of deacons or deaconess, which just means servant. And historically and consistently, for 2,000 years, the church has largely reserved the office of elder to qualified men. And the church has affirmed a pattern from scripture of male leadership in the home and male leadership in the church. And that's been true across eras, continents, and cultures. Now, some people would say that that tradition is not a good thing, that that is the result of negative forms of patriarchy, ways women have been viewed as inferior to men or tragically through misogyny, instances where women have been abused and mistreated not only in society but in the church. And so really, it's not until the 20th century where you begin to see this widespread movement that has subverted and challenged the consensus of the church and has begun to open up the office of elder to women. So again, the debate is not about women in ministry. Women are an essential part of ministry in fulfilling the Great Commission. Southern Baptists especially know that if you look at the amount of women serving overseas with the IMB. So it's not a debate about women in ministry. It's a debate over the office of elder. And in these matters, you are either egalitarian or complementarian. And there might be some variation within each of those labels. But really, those are the two basic options. And, you know, one of the debates about this very issue is the terms themselves. There's always going to be problems with the language that we use. They're not exhaustive terms. They're prone to misunderstanding, uh, but I think they're helpful and they're necessary as a frame of reference. So let me define the two terms. First, egalitarianism. Egalitarianism is the view that men and women are equal in all respects, their nature relationships with one another, and roles in society and in the church. And specifically in the home, men and women share equal authority in submitting to each other. In the church, men and women can serve in all the ministries of the church, including eldership, what we would call pastor or senior pastor. Now, in contrast, complementarianism is the view that men and women are complementary to one another. Complementarians affirm with egalitarians that men and women are equal in nature. Yet they differ from egalitarians in that they believe men and women are distinct in terms of their relationships and their roles. Thus, they hold to male leadership in the home where the wife submits to his authority, and in the church they would say men and women can serve in all the ministries of the church except for the office of elder, which is limited to qualified men. Now, a common logical fallacy is what you call the straw man argument. And that's where you set up a caricature of an argument or a position and you don't actually represent it truthfully. And it's very easy to dismantle or destroy it. And that happens on both sides of this debate. So you hear things like, you know, those those egalitarians, they're a bunch of radical feminists who have embraced critical theory and so on. Or those complementarians, they're stuck in the past. They're committed to enshrining patriarchy. They're concerned with subjugating and silencing women and restricting them to the kitchen. And the problem is those emotional Caricatures are emotionally charged and it skews the debate. And so, on both sides of this debate, we need to give proper respect to both sides of the argument. But proper respect does not mean that you can't be critical or make judgments on certain positions. Many people have forgotten that today. But... If you are going to make a judgment or uh, be critical of a position, that needs to be done in a respectful way. So for the sake of clarity and in all fairness, uh, I'll, I'll reveal my hand. I'm a complementarian. I think that's the most biblically faithful position to hold. And in respect to the leadership uh, in the church, that's the position of River. Uh, that's the position of Southern Baptist. But before we get too far into this, it's important to remind ourselves that we rightly think about how important of an issue this is. And I think Albert Moeller is helpful here with his concept of theological triage. So medical triage is about prioritizing treatment of patients. So you treat the most severe injury first in a crisis situation, so a a sucking chest wound broken wrist, skin, knee. You're going to treat those, uh, you're going to prioritize those. Similarly, we can think about theological triage when assessing the importance of doctrine. So there are first-order doctrines, matters of first importance, so the doctrine of the Trinity or the full humanity and the deity of Jesus. So first-order doctrines are going to be things you find in the Creed, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Second order doctrines are those issues with which uh, believing Christians might disagree on, uh, but that disagreement creates boundaries or denominations. So, for example, uh, the meaning and mode of baptism. So Presbyterians and Baptists differ in this regard. We don't baptize babies. Presbyterians do. So second-order doctrines, you might think of uh, confessions or statements of faith for particular worshiping communities. So the Baptist faith and message would outline uh, some second-order doctrines in distinction from others. And then third-order doctrines, those are doctrines within um, Christianity in which Christians may disagree on but they can still remain in close fellowship with each other, so even in the same church or denomination. So, for example, most doctrines falling under eschatology, or the end times, would be characterized as third order. So within the same church, you could have different views regarding the millennial reign of Christ. So... When we're thinking about this uh, this debate about women in, in the pastorate, we should ask, where does this fall? It's, and I think it's a second-order doctrine. So it's not what some might call a salvation issue. It's not an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. However, to say that it's second-order doesn't imply that it's unimportant Indeed, one of my criticisms of the egalitarian position is that while it's true it's a second-order doctrine, it's a second-order doctrine that can affect first-order doctrines. Now, that's, a, you know, that's a whole other rabbit trail we could pursue. So let me just give you a brief overview of each position and how they articulate their position from key passages of Scripture. And uh, before we do that, just as a reminder, uh, from each of those definitions, uh, you, you notice that they both actually affirm something that's crucial. The equality of men and women. So it's important to emphasize that so this doesn't get lost in the debate. So to do that, I want to use the help of Greg Allison from his book, The Doctrine of the Church, uh, called Sojourners and Strangers. And in that book, he highlights three great equalities of men and women that are affirmed in scripture. It's not the only three, but it's three. And the first is that both men and women are fully and equally made in the image of God. I think I've read this verse in every class I've taught. Genesis 1.27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Men and women are equal in their significance and dignity as divine image bearers. The second great equality of men and women is that men and women have equal access to salvation through God's Spirit. Galatians 3 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The point is that Christ breaks down any barrier that separates us from each other and he grants us equal access to his saving benefits. Third would be that men and women are both given gifts of the Holy Spirit. So as Allison notes, there are no gender-specific gifts. 1 Corinthians says that the Spirit gives gifts of leading, teaching, exhorting, faith, giving, prophecy, speaking in tongues, all for the edification of the church. And some would like to point out here and say that, you know, see, that's an inconsistency for the complementarians, because you can't affirm that there are no gender-specific gifts, teaching being one of them, and at the same time limit the office of elder to men. However, those are, in fact, I think, two separate issues. So there might be Differences for how those gifts are expressed or exercised. But that's a different matter than equal distribution of those gifts. So one has to do with ability. The other has to do with the context of how that gift is exercised. So a concrete example uh, to pick on Elizabeth for a second. My, my wife, Elizabeth, has the ability... She's board certified. She has her license to practice medicine in Kansas. She can't do that right now in Florida. So, of course, that's not a perfect analogy, but it's, it's not a direct parallel to the question of women and the pastorate. But the point is that under certain circumstances, abilities and gifts may be limited. Or, you know, you might even think of prophecy or speaking in tongues, those are spiritual gifts, but Paul sets forth limitations of how those gifts are to be used in the context of public worship. So equal distribution of gifts uh, does not mean that um, they are equally expressed and applied in, in given contexts. So as we look at those two views, complementarianism on the one hand, egalitarianism on the other, it's important that we remember those three biblical affirmations of the equality of men and women. So now what I want to do is just give a brief overview of the positions regarding leadership in the church. So the first is the complementarian position. Complementarianism, again, is the view that men and women are equal in nature, yet distinct in terms of their roles in the church and in the home. And the office of elder is reserved for qualified men. And the key passage here is 1 Timothy two eleven through 14. Paul says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. The traditional interpretation asserts that Paul gives two prohibitions here. He does not permit a woman to teach or to to exercise authority over a man. So, Paul's reasoning reflecting justification for that command is that he points back to creation order in Genesis. So, Paul seems to think that it's significant that Adam was formed first. And second, Paul prohibits a woman from teaching because Paul sees it as a subversion of God's created order in his intent for male leadership. So, you know, on a a cursory reading, if you just read that verse quickly, uh, it might sound as if Paul is prohibiting women from teaching because he's implying that all women are more gullible or susceptible to being deceived or something like that. But that is not what Paul is saying. Paul is rooting his instruction in the order of creation. So this is something that extends beyond the immediate cultural context at Ephesus. Paul is rooting this in creation order. And so Paul describes the specific conditions and circumstances surrounding the first sin. And Paul suggests that the first sin was the disruption of the creation order. So here, here's what happens. God first creates Adam, and before God created Eve from Adam's side, God gave Adam the instruction not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So it's presumed that Adam was given the responsibility for teaching and relaying that information to Eve. So God creates Adam, God gives a command to Adam, Adam is supposed to teach Eve, and together they were to be co-rulers of God's good creation. But then Satan comes in, and he inverts and subverts that creation order. So Satan approaches Eve first, though she was created second. So he, he approaches Eve, he deceives her, and then Eve influences Adam, and together they both fall. And so what you have there is this inversion. So God's prohibition on women teaching is rooted in that creation narrative. God's original design was for male leadership. And so the prohibition on women teaching is not because women are more gullible, but it is rooted in God's good design. And th- the responsibility that God gave to Adam to lead and to teach all occurred pre-fall in the goodness of God's creation. And so it's obvious post fall how that's been distorted and abused because of human sinfulness. You know, another thing we should ask about this passage in First Timothy is what does quietness mean? You know, some English translations choose the word silent, that a woman should be silent. Uh, But I think that creates even more confusion in our context today. So surely quietness does not mean that a woman must never utter a word in a public worship service. And that would contradict what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11 regarding women praying and prophesying in the church. It also logically just doesn't make any sense. So think about our context here at River. Is Brenda not supposed to ever get up on front of the stage and and give announcements or pray? Is Anna Laura or Allison or Kim, are they not supposed to stand up on stage and sing? No. Don't be ridiculous. The word quiet... That Paul uses there is actually the same word quiet that Paul uses earlier when he instructs us to lead a quiet life dignified in every way in verse 2. So the, the word doesn't mean one thing there and means something else here. Paul is not suggesting that we should live silent lives where we don't utter a word So in all of this, it's important to remember that the governing context is the spirit of worship in the church. And what God wants is pure worship. Jesus said God desires those who worship in spirit and in truth. And so in verse 8, Paul instructs men that they need to worship lifting, uh, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. So he's not Necessarily talking about the physical posture of their hands. What he's talking about is the posture of their heart. Worship without hypocrisy. Worship flowing out of a life that's not marked by anger or quarreling, that's not infected with those sins. And so just as Paul gives that command to men in verse 8, he gives the women a command in verse 9 not to be concerned with adornment, with outward physical appearance as a marker of status and public worship. Instead, public worship is to be focused on the heart. So just as the men are told not to argue and quarrel, so are the women. They're turned to learn in all quietness. Their heart is not to be marked by this argumentative spirit. Again, that governing context of 1 Timothy 2 is public worship. And in public worship, it is both men and women who are submitting to Christ. Both men and women are submitting to the authority of the teaching elder. So this passage is not so much... About women submitting to men in this misogynistic way. It's about men and women submitting to the Word of God and the administration of the Word of God and submitting to the authorities who God has entrusted with the teaching of the Word of God. And Paul will carry on straight through to chapter three where he outlines church leadership and the qualifications of church leaders. And again, the implication is that women and all the other men are to be submissive and learn from the teaching elder that God has set in place. And in chapter 3, in terms of the church structure, the Bible uses the analogy of the family. And that's where we see this pattern emerge of male leadership in the home, male leadership in the church. What are the qualifications of an elder? Well, chapter 3 says he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So there's this correlation there. Male leadership in the home, male leadership in the church, rooted in creation order. So that's the complementarian position. Let's move on to the egalitarian position. So uh, egalitarianism is the view that men and women are equal in all respects, in their nature, in the offices of the church, and in the home. And for egalitarians, as they look at 1 Timothy 2, they would say the cultural context governs their interpretation of Paul's prohibitions. So in other words, it was simply a cultural prohibition, a culturally specific prohibition that's no longer relevant today. And it's argued that uh, the context at Ephesus is one where there were these female false teachers who were a part of what is thought to be called the the cults of Artemis. So Artemis was the goddess of hunting, this protector of women, the goddess of childhood, childbirth. Uh, perhaps uh, the the teaching involved or emphasized female superiority. and so they egalitarians argue that Paul's prohibition of women teaching was really a culturally specific prohibition to limit heretical doctrine in that specific time and place. or, The argument is made that Paul doesn't allow women to teach in a domineering way. So in a way that subverts male authority. So it's not really a prohibition about women teaching, but about women teaching in an inappropriate manner. Or uh, some might say the cultural context reflects a lack of education among women. That's why they were prohibited, prohibited from teaching. And as soon, as soon as the women have access to education and sound doctrine, then they can exercise authority in the church. And then the other notable passage for egalitarians is Galatians chapter 3, where Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus." So egalitarians like to say that the church cannot make any distinction for the office, for office holders on the basis of gender in light of that verse. But I would ask, do egalitarians have issues with any other limitations on the office of elder? Because the office of elder is not open to all men. It is reserved for qualified men. There must be a limitation in some sense. And limitation in itself is not bad. So how do we respond to these two interpretations? Well, in in response to the egalitarian interpretation of 1 Timothy 2, ultimately I find it unconvincing because it, it depends on a lot of shaky historical speculation. If the prohibition was culturally specific, uh, it builds an entire hermeneutical argument on a sketchy reconstruction of a situation that really is speculative. We don't know a whole lot about this so called Artemis cult. Just how influential was the Artemis cult on the church at Ephesus? so one of the reasons why um, I, I don't think we can just say that this was an arbitrary um, cultural consideration is the fact that Paul goes back to Genesis in support of his argument. So Paul, and, and that is what seems to govern his interpretation. So that, that suggests that Paul is not making a culturally specific argument because he points back to something that transcends the current context and he makes a general prohibition. And as far as the passage in Galatians about um, there being neither male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus, as other scholars have noted, uh, equality or sameness is not the main concern in that passage. Unity is. So there, there's a lot more that I could say. Um, there are books upon books that have been written about this issue. Books upon books will continue to be written about this issue. But ultimately, I find that the complementarians make the stronger exegetical arguments. And in the end, I want to submit to Scripture. Scripture. So the real practical question for us, if, if we embrace a a complementarian perspective, is how do we ensure women are actively involved in the ministry of the church? And here I think it's important not to focus so much on rights as it is to focus on gifts. Because rights language, as it's used today, really is foreign to the biblical text. How can we allow men and women to exercise their gifts for the sake of building up the church in a way that honors and is faithful to the Bible? So we have women on staff at River, but they're not in the authority structure in terms of the elder body who employs Terry. And so they're not over heads of households in terms of authority. So you have... You know, Sherry is, uh, the, she leads the youth ministry. Brenda leads the women's ministry. Um, and so Sherry, she lead, Sherry leads uh, boys and girls. So there, there's mixed gender in Sherry's ministry. But Sherry is not over the head of household um, because the youth's parent or the youth's father would be considered the head of household um, in, in those circumstances. And the other thing I'd say is you don't have to be in a staff position to be involved in ministry. And so we have lots of women who are serving as small group leaders, uh, other capacities in the church. So there's plenty of opportunity for women to be thoroughly involved and invested in the church in, in the exercise of their gifts. So now let's move on to discussing gender roles in the home. And so we talked a lot about leadership structure, uh, but what about the home? And if you were here last week, I talked about how I think we should resist gendered stereotypes. Uh, I said that I believe that there are not character traits or personality qualities that belong exclusively to men or to women but that there are common human properties that express themselves in gendered ways and specific contexts. And it's possible to affirm that and also uphold traditional biblical understanding of male leadership in the home and in the church. So for instance, uh, the Bible never tells us that women should never leave the home or that women can't make money can't make more money than their husbands. (laughs) I am a PhD student. Elizabeth is a physician. She's the primary breadwinner. So not only at this stage in our life, but likely for the duration of our working lives, she is going to make more money than I do. And that's okay. Now, conversely, uh, some of our friends are the opposite. Some women... Are called to be homemakers. And that's a noble vocation. They don't need to feel ashamed about that. So my leadership or headship in the home is not tied to gendered social norms. Rather, my leadership and headship is characterized by Christ. It ought to be. And I believe that I'm responsible for the spiritual leadership in the direction of my family. So a key passage for us to think about authority structures in terms of the home is Ephesians chapter 5. And headship, or leadership in Ephesians 5, is expressed in sacrificial love. Ephesians 5 says Christ is the head of the church and the husband is the head of the wife. In verse 21, Paul instructs us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there is mutual submission under the authority of Christ. Let me read this passage. Paul says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. There is a leadership structure there. Now, sometimes egalitarians will point to that verse 21, the mutual submission under the authority of Christ. And they'll say that mutual submission equals equality. But I believe mutual submission doesn't mean there's absent a leadership structure. Christ is the head of the church, the husband is the head of the wife, and husbands ought to love their spouse in the same way that Christ loved his church, by dying for her, in sacrificial love and service. And then wives, likewise, are to submit to their husbands in the same way that the church submits to Christ's authority. So what you have there is a mutual submission in which both parties are dignified. So again, Ephesians 5 refers to leadership structure. And it's doing so, it's not reinforcing gendered stereotypes. You know, we often hear about toxic masculinity. That's not what Ephesians 5 is describing. The masculinity Ephesians 5 is describing is a male leadership that is characterized by Christ-like love. The passage is not reinforcing gendered stereotypes that women are more natural followers or, or that they need to be restricted to the certain domestic spheres or things like that. The passage is giving us a vision of leadership, followership, and submission mutual submission uh, that elevates and dignifies, especially elevates and dignifies the woman. So think about it this way. When a woman submits to Christ, Christ elevates and dignifies her. I mean, think of Jesus's interactions with the woman at the well or the healing of the bleeding woman who reaches out to touch Jesus's garment. Submitting to Christ and his lordship there doesn't erase her dignity, doesn't deny her personhood, doesn't imply that she's inferior. Likewise, a woman who submits to her husband who is embodying Christ's love and service would also be dignified. Now, tragically, we have not lived up to this calling of Ephesians 5. And I could have spent all of our time this afternoon highlighting the ways in which we've fallen short, the ways in which individuals and churches have hidden abuse to hold on to power. And I don't mean to minimize that in any way, but that's simply not where I want to focus my time and attention this afternoon. So let Ephesians 5 convict you as needed in your personal shortcomings, but let it also serve as a compelling vision for moving forward together as men and women under the authority of Christ with our gaze set on Christ.